Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm, servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Yes, it is your host, uh, Charles Marshall, in Radio Land, Podcast Land, here on the Neil Garfield Show. And as always, I'm very pleased to uh, have my good friend and fellow compatriot in the fight, uh, Bill Padalo. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Good to be here again. Uh, So Bill and I today are going to be, I I sometimes use the word revisiting, uh, here we are this February 18th, 2021, we're already breaking the into the new year, but sometimes talk about revisiting certain topics. We have talked about the LSF-9 Master Partition Trust in in a number of different ways. I think Bill is continuing to hone down and show just how much there are huge credibility uh, issues with the way that those trusts were formed and, of course, all of which raise the issue of whether they're legitimate legal entities at all, which is something that uh, we often challenge in our litigation. In any event, uh, he's going to get into the critical issue of standing and really, I think, is, is showing some of the contours to how they don't have standing uh, in you know, particularly the judicial foreclosure cases they bring, but even beyond that. Uh, so uh, I'm going to have Bill uh, jump in on that in just a moment. For for now, I did want to uh, let the callers know that another area we're revisiting today is the COVID uh, situation. And I think we're all pretty COVID tired at this point. I think I can speak for all listeners of all persuasions, no matter what side of the foreclosure issue you're on. Uh, on the other hand, it is uh, at least the legal architecture around it. Uh, I don't know if it would be safe to say it's here to stay like for decades, but it certainly seems to be in a status where it could be staying for years, certainly months. And so fortunately or unfortunately, and I would say mostly unfortunately, but that's the real world we live in, so we deal with it. We do need to deal with the COVID-19 situation. I do need to discuss pluses and minuses and how it impacts uh, homeowners' options when they are facing foreclosure, either on the judicial or the non-judicial front, and I'm also going to outline some of the issues related to the eviction front. And there are some sort of cautiously optimistic areas that I will get into where the COVID-19 impact is a benefit. Uh, I've touched on them before a little bit. I I, uh, I won't have an extended 
time to discuss that today, but I will get a little deeper into that, uh, the issue of jury trials, because the way that that's shaking out is to say that it's literally moving in the direction of going all virtual, but more about that later. And, uh, Bill, if you could get into this whole LSF 9 scenario again. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. And before I actually uh, touch on that, I did want to talk about something uh, that happened yesterday, as a matter of fact, in California in a UD action that applies to the COVID topic here. So I just kind of want to put everybody or at least give them a little bit of a heads up or a warning on uh, what to prepare for in the event that you're going to be going into a trial uh, using today's technology, whether it be Zoom or uh, telephone or whatnot. So uh, that was a UD action I was going to be testifying in yesterday in San Joaquin County. And um, I was prepared and on standby to, te- to testify telephonically. And the court had provided a phone number and a PIN number uh, to dial in. And, I, and I'm not sure if all the counties in California work this way, but uh, they had provided this number and PIN to get into the specific courtroom and where the case was assigned. Well, when the time came, uh, the attorney on our side said he was in the courtroom. He says, okay, we're ready for you. Call the number and the PIN. Uh, when I dialed that number, there was a technical uh, problem whereby uh, I entered the PIN and the court would say with recording, welcome to San Joaquin County Superior Court, goodbye, and it hung up on me. All right, so we had this glitch. We were trying to resolve the glitch, figuring out why. I tried calling from different phones, different numbers. Um, there were. I even had uh, someone in California uh, try to dial in that number as well, and the same thing happened to them. So in the end, uh, the court said, well, this UD case has been on my docket for three years, and we're going to proceed to trial, and sorry, but your expert witness and his testimony, uh, it's a technical problem. It's probably on his end, so he's kind of a laid or assigned blame on my end, which was false, but said we're proceeding with this trial anyway, and uh, my client got locked out and was unable to get my testimony and evidence in. So that was very, very concerning. Um, the, the good news is is that um, our side and my client actually ended up prevailing, and uh, the case was dismissed against U.S. Bank and the UD. So that's the silver that that's the silver lining in this message. But um, just beware if you're using these technical uh, uh, means to uh, proceed. Have a backup plan. Call the clerk. Figure out if something were to happen or a glitch or the phone number, whatever doesn't work, is there a backup solution? And try to work those things out ahead of time because um, that would have been a real shame uh, had this client then gone to trial and everything was prepared and having a technical glitch essentially uh, caused them to not be able to defend themselves properly. So that's that's the message I want to add to uh, uh, on, on, the, on that front. So. Um, yeah, I'd like to jump in yep. here, actually, um, yeah. to give my own insight on what you're saying, uh, because in my experience, and I've seen this 
county by county, uh, I, I don't know that it's countless times at this point, but it's certainly too many, and it's probably as many as a dozen. In the last year, since the COVID strictures and the COVID uh, kind of remediation uh, options cropped up in various courts here in California, um, it it is the case that <clears throat> particularly the more rural counties like San Joaquin, like San Bernardino, and sometimes even someplace like Riverside, there are connection problems that seem to be an ongoing issue. And the, the, the technical aspects are all theoretically straightforward, uh, but the execution of them in terms of the way the court is doing uh, the court interface, it's, it's really uh, absolutely uh, kind of to use the, the you know the web internet and web internet um, analogy you know this is like beta testing of 1.0 and it's literally a 1.0 a lot of these programs are simply not ready for prime time I will say that the federal courts are almost uniformly using Zoom in California, and then some of the more urban counties are as well for some of their uh, legal matters. Um, and Zoom, I think, is concerning for other reasons uh, in that the, the, the data, gathering, data gathering that goes on there is just extraordinary, but that's beyond the scope of, of this show. Uh, nevertheless, Zoom is a very functional, and, and I've found it so far, over dozens of different types of uses, including court hearings and depositions, to be not flawless, but easy to go in and out of, uh, easy to navigate through for the most part. Um, but a lot of local courts have set up their own systems, and I will say these systems here in California are universally troublesome and, and, uh, on a number of occasions. And then the other issue there is that the court call was a program in California, which I think has moved to some different states. And that, frankly, was working very well. And all these counties that have switched to these new programs had court call for decades or years, not decades, but certainly years, certainly going back to uh, yeah, I think around the early 2000s, possibly the 1990s is when it first showed up. So we are talking theoretically decades. Nevertheless, uh, court call is being phased out, which is, to my mind, a disservice to the public, a disservice to the attorneys, a disservice to uh, process. Um, but, you know, I'm giving, giving, giving it back to you now, Bill. I just wanted to, to provide a little more context on that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Uh, it's it just seems to be a little bit more prejudicial towards uh, the consumer or the homeowner in these situations, unfortunately. And uh, I don't. It's it was really kind of irritating because I've testified telephonically in the past over the years, and it seems very easy for the court if they have my number to call me and just simply put me into speaker. But anyway, uh, moving on to um, the LSF nine topic. Well. Obviously, um, I've been harping and pounding on this for a long time, and um, recently, and I posted and talked about this a little bit recently, um, that 
the Ellis of Nine Master Participation Trust has been using simply that name without the use of a trustee in lawsuits uh, currently where they're filing in judicial states as the plaintiff. And in non-judicial states, they're leaving out that name of, the, of a trustee, uh, and, you, and that's typically named as U.S. Bank Trust N.A. And uh, I, I thought it's interesting because in a federal case that I posted on my article yesterday on my website, bpinvestigativeagency.com, uh, LSF 9 Mass Participation Trust was the defendant and being sued in federal court. And when they came in represented uh, and started arguing, they made it very clear that they were sued erroneously and that that's not their uh, their true name and that the trustee, U.S. Bank Trust N.A., was their client uh, uh, on behalf of the trust. And so, therefore, they made it very clear that the plaintiff is suing the wrong party. Well, isn't that kind of rich, right? They're, because you've got this uh, admitted erroneous name and erroneous party suing and obtaining judgments in other courts as the plaintiff, right? And so, you know, my point about the jurisdiction issue, now this this applies not only to this current this situation regarding LSF-9, but I've seen uh, lots of foreclosure cases where it's been real sloppy with the plaintiff naming or in the assignments, uh, so on and so forth, where they're simply leaving out, whether it's intentional or not, the name of, the, of a trustee. Um, and as uh, most uh, listeners may be aware or may not be aware, but a trust uh, whether that's an entity or of itself or whatever is represented, has to be spoken for and given and the authority to act on its behalf has to be done through uh, a named and elected trustee. So uh, I, I did a little research. You might want to do a little research yourselves out there from uh, some case law or whatnot, but it's, it's pretty clear that uh, – if, if the proper party and in interest being the trustee is not named, and if they're growing and proceeding and getting judgments with an admitted erroneous name, that there's possible grounds to attack those judgments and whatnot on the basis of no, no standing in jurisdiction. The proper party wasn't named, right? So <clears throat> what we're going to see now, and, um, and what this kind of, in just a few minutes, it's sort of hard to really get to the bottom of uh, uh, a very complex topic here. But what's going on with these hedge funds? And, and, and I've been posting up about this for a long time, and especially the name of U.S. Bank, uh, who's usually the, the most predominantly or predominant named trustee for all of these wacky named trusts that, you know, you, you can't confirm their existence, so on and so forth. It's usually U.S. Bank. Now, why is that? Well, back in around 2010, uh, U.S. Bank uh, teamed up with Fannie and Freddie Mac in the housing finance agencies uh, when Freddie and Fannie were taken into conservatorship by, uh, uh, by our government. And they created a liquidity program uh, that, in a nutshell, it kind of is what it's what it states, a liquidity and securitization program that really was designed to take all of these toxic certificates 
uh, and these non-performing loan packages and start dumping them off and being purchased by the hedge funds. And the goal of these liquidity programs was not necessarily to work out uh, and get these loans re-performing and get the homeowners into modifications or do anything that was really in the best interest of the homeowners. The goal of the liquidity program was essentially to get the foreclosures, okay? And the reason uh, that was the goal is obvious um, that what Fannie and Freddie has been selling for all of these years is, you know, I'm going to use that term again, the Brooklyn Bridge. They didn't have the goods. They didn't have and never took possession of the notes or the mortgages or the deeds by assignment. They didn't take them by endorsement. They never physically took possession of anything. Okay, so they never – the sales transactions to these GSE entities, and the reason why you're going to – uh, find that there's stealth usually in in the uh, the chain of title most times, or you'll find where uh, they don't rear their head, or even find out they're in the chain of title until after a foreclosure sale when the assignments then occur. Well, this is part of the reason why is that <clears throat> Fannie and Freddie Mac especially has admitted that the PCs, the participation certificates underlying this garbage and this toxic sludge of nothing, um, they don't even verify the data. And so they're literally selling nothing. They don't, they can't verify, they don't have anything to sell, right? So what they're doing with the hedge funds is they're just coming in and they're naming and making up these names and U.S. Bank, as an administrator, as part of this program, is is allowing their name to be used as a trustee uh, on behalf of these fictitious trusts, and they're proceeding to steamroll and uh, foreclose and act as though they have all the proper documentation, so on and so forth, to get the judgments and uh, to uh, liquidate these properties. So this is part of the nasty underbelly here of what we're dealing with from the 60,000-point view. Now, What's coming here, and I'm a little late to the party in, in researching this, but I'm trying to get up to speed as we speak, but since around 2014, as uh, the government and these agencies, the GSEs, have been trying to uh, not only liquidate all this toxic sludge, but they came up with a program called a Single Security Initiative, whereby, in all intents and purposes, they're going to take all Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac securitization bonds from the past and even moving forward currently. They're going to combine them all into one single security, and they're going to re-securitize this stuff. And it's getting really, really muddled and nasty from this point. But they were ready to launch this single initiative, it looks like, towards the end of 19 before COVID hit. So now as they were ready to launch – and COVID sets in, and now everything's been put on hold, and things are backing up. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I think you would probably agree, Charles, that uh, it's going to get uh, kind of wild and crazy, and um, you know, in, in, in the months that lie ahead here. But I just kind of wanted to point out, though, that um, this is really at the heart of what's going on with all these fake entities. Uh, as, as Neil has been touting, as, as we've been touting, they don't have the necessary documentation 
to ever really prove a claim or to ever really show that they're entitled to enforce and foreclose on uh, anything. They don't own the debts. They can't prove any of it. And this is exactly the reason why. So it's, 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 um, it's, it's a, it's a crime spree, in my view, uh, selling what you don't own and can't prove and lying and perjuring and fabricating documents, and it's only going to get worse. Charles? Uh, I mean, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, Bill, I, I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly, as a matter of fact. And uh, I will make my disclaimer that uh, we're not making legal conclusions when we describe uh, the shenanigans that go on here, and those shenanigans do reach the level of uh, – really predatory uh, predation and they wreck a lot of people's lives. And I think uh, even if I'm just pointing that informally, as it were, I think it needs to be said. And uh, so now I will get into um, some of the nuts and bolts, you know, that we have discussed previously on this show. But I think that are important to, to, to briefly revisit. Um, debt validation letters and qualified written requests will often, particularly in a non-judicial foreclosure context, uh, buy you some time. So, and of course, that's lawful and legal. It's, it's not an illicit delay strategy. It's simply using legal procedure available. And even when qualified written requests, let's say, had been done several years prior, hypothetically, um, it can be legitimate to do to do a new one because so much in a chain of title record is often added over a several-year period. And often there are new recorded documents, there are new assignments, there are new purported sales trustees who may or may not really be in the chain of title properly, often are not. So when you put all that together, qualified written requests often will buy you one, sometimes two rounds of, uh, of sale date postponement. Unusually, but it does happen, you, you sometimes will get a canceled sale date from a qualified written request. And, uh, I, you know, it's like anything else. I mean, there's a combination of legal procedure. And it plays out in California in one way. It can play out in other states another. One California rule that... Uh, I've seen in a recent case is where the qualified written request was done legitimately and usefully and it did create a sale date postponement except the sales trustee postponed the sale way past the one year time frame that notice of trustee sales are considered legitimate in California. In other words, in California and uh, I don't have time on this show to get into, you know, potential caveats and exceptions or whatnot, uh, because almost every law, most every rule has some caveats and exceptions, whether it's the foreclosure arena or some other arena. Nevertheless, the general and pretty standard rule in California is if you're uh, taking a property to sale in a non-judicial foreclosure, according to the proper scheme of the California Civil Code, principally 2924, then you need to uh, renew your notice of trustee sale every year. And this notice of trustee sale, having been generated originally uh, back in early 
early mid-February, let's say. It's actually, when you play out all the dates, you could even say late February, but its expiration came came due this February. And it clearly uh, is going to be expired, has been expired, um, as of probably about a week from now, somewhere in the February 20-something 20, 20 range. And the sale date already having been moved to, to March, uh, now that's an illegitimate moving because the sale date can't be held um, one year past the uh, expiration date. Now, they're uh, well, they're going to have to deal with this legally. I think they're going to make the argument, well, they moved the sale date within the one-year time frame. And is there case law to support their position? I'm not going to say there's no case law, and I'm not going to say their position is totally untenable, and this is where we get into caveats. Nevertheless, uh, they still have a lot of review they need to do for this qualified written request. So I think uh, borrowers, homeowners should really look into those as part of a debt validation strategy. It really can slow down the other side a lot. Uh, And one uh, that I think is also worth getting into is, you know, California Homeowner Bill of Rights is still here. And it's more than just on life support. It's still an actively used, actively engaged, legitimate vehicle for getting uh, your sales dates looked at. And while the review is happening, again, with some caveats and exceptions, the sale date needs to be postponed. and theoretically, if you were to do repeated requests when you'd already been denied or had an incomplete application that considered was considered by the uh, servicer to be abandoned, now theoretically, the new uh, loan mod request um, is actually not illegitimate under the current. California Homeowner Bill of Rights. There have been revisions on this every couple of years or so. In the latest revision a couple of years back, there is again a position where one might say that if you've had a denial, you're done with that servicer. You can't just pop out another loan rod request. Like, you know, a week after the denial, you can appeal a week after the denial, and you should use your appeal periods, which are 30 days after the denial. Nevertheless, let's say you're beyond that time frame and you just do a new loan mod request when you had a denial, let's say, two months ago. California law is not clear at all that that's an illegitimate request. California law is not clear at all that the servicer should, uh, you know, in other words, the general way of reading the, the, the current situation is that you, the servicer will need to postpone. So those are two avenues. You know, short sales are another option. Uh, I think we'll get into that in another show. It's a less favorite option because, in essence, when you short sale, you're giving up the property. It can be more complicated than that, but that's a big limitation. And then on the UD front, uh, as I've mentioned before, it's legitimate to use federal removals. They need to be used strategically. The legislatures in California and elsewhere want to say federal removals are an illegitimate way of addressing 
eviction matters post-foreclosure where the state courts do not appear at all inclined to protect uh, people's federal civil rights, the former homeowner, then yes, going to a federal removal can be legitimate. Of course, it's a case-by-case situation. Everyone would need to consult with legal counsel. Uh, Don't be surprised, though, if it's difficult to find legal counsel to actually put their name on a federal removal in an unlawful detainer action in California or elsewhere, because doing so can draw extra scrutiny from those federal courts. It it can uh, invite them to go after the attorney for some sanctions. So strategically, federal removals often need to be done in pro per. And again, you can still consult with attorneys about what that might look like. And when it comes to to jury trials, they do take a lot longer to set up. Lots of moving parts. They're all moving to the virtual uh, situation where all the litigants are basically um, dialing in through Zoom or some other video medium. Uh, We'll be back of course, to talk about that and other, other uh, of the COVID-19 uh, situation aspects and all of the good uh, info that Bill has. Thank you, Bill, for joining me. And we will be back. Uh, well, Bill, Neil will be back, and then I will be back shortly. Thanks, Thanks Charles. Yep, bye-bye. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.